The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, let's get started. We have a great episode today. Karen Rothman is here. Karen is the author of a new book called The Things We Know Best, John Ashbery's Early Life, which the New York Times has called one of the most notable books of 2017, noting, quote, this first full-fledged biography of the poet is full of rich and fascinating detail, end quote. I completely agree. John Ashbery is, of course, one of the greatest poets in the English language of the 20th century. Mike Palindrome, our old friend, is going to stop by very quickly to make the case that he is, in fact, the greatest poet. He's one of Mike's favorites anyway, and Mike will tell us why. Then we have an interview with Karen Rothman, who explains how she went from being too anxious to call John Ashbery to becoming his friend and confidant to the moment when he handed her four of his journals, which had never before been made public, to her fascinating journey into his life story. Along the way, she learned some things about the poet's life that she told him for the first time, which is a pretty interesting place for a biographer to be. We'll talk about all of that. It's a wonderful book. He's a wonderful poet, and his early life, or Maybe I should say tracing his early life, seeing the influences and people and events that ended up transmuted by his talent and his genius and his art, the way his life made its way into his art. It's a privilege to have this kind of close-up view. So we'll get there in a minute. Let's start with an email. Ah, someone's at, someone's at the door. Just a second. Elizabeth Bennet, star of the novel Pride and Prejudice, here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. <laughs> Huzzah to us. Ah, yes. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love, <laughs> literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. And your good, your good sense and your good sensibility. Lizzie Bennett! <laughs> and yes, of course I will be babysitting for you, Ms. Bennett. It's an honor and a privilege. And since we're in the 19th century, I would imagine I could use the Grandma Rose trick of putting a little honey on the pacifier. <laughs> Not something we do today, but it worked for Grandma Rose. <laughs> oh, a little honey. You loved it. You were so quiet. <laughs> oh, look, 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 look. That's my Swiss grandmother. May she rest in peace. I did love it, I'm sure. I would hate to ask you for a donation, but my God, who am I to disagree with Elizabeth Bennett? So, 
Since she brought it up, I should tell you that there are a couple of ways to help support the show. You can head over to Patreon.com, which is a website that lets you sign up for a monthly donation using a credit card or a PayPal account. That's Patreon.com slash literature. You can give as little as a dollar a month or a little more. You could buy me a coffee, buy me a beer, however you like to treat your friends and your conversationalists in your life, which is what I'd like to think I am, your friend, your pal. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash literature. This week, we're thanking a couple of new Patreons, Anna Marie Marsilio, Matthew Baxter, and our old friend Pleasant Street, who increased her donation. Pleasant Street and I go way back, back to the blogging days. I'm so grateful to her and to Anna Marie and Matthew and all of the rest of you who have been so generous. I'm planning a kind of reward for you all. I view this as a community. I'd like to give back if I can. In 2018, I'll try to put together some bonus content that's available for everyone who has signed up. So stay tuned. The other way to support the show is to go to historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can buy tote bags, mugs, or a virtual coffee, which is a one-time donation. Historyofliterature.com slash shop. Here's our email from Matthew. Dear Jack, thank you for your message. I have enjoyed working my way through the History of Literature podcast so much, I am glad I can buy you a cup of coffee or a beer each month. I owe you that for the Flannery O'Connor episode alone. I forgot about that. That was another popular episode. Your stories about Richard Stern had me crying with laughter as I walked down the street. His rejection of Naked Lunch, his attack on Catch-22, what was he thinking? You may be pleased to hear that I will join you in reading Dubliners this Christmas, beginning The Sisters on December 10th. Yes. For those of you who aren't aware, my... Holiday tradition is to read the Dubliners every year. One story a day for each of the days leading up to Christmas Eve when I read the dead. It's a great way to spend the holidays. I highly recommend it. Matthew continues, I can't wait to reread the book. It had a tremendous effect on me when I first read it in my teens. But while I've returned to certain tales many times, I haven't read them in order since that first reading. I wondered if you are still sending your literary postcards. I know they haven't been mentioned on the podcast in some time, but I'd certainly like to pass you my address if you are. However, I live in Scotland, so do not feel obliged in the slightest. Ugh. He then goes on to recommend an episode on the novels of Alistair Gray, which is a great idea, and I'll put that on the list. Matthew, I do have literary postcards, and I do have stamps. I would love to send you one. Of course I'll send one to Scotland. Scotland's one of my favorite places in the world. So feel free to send me your address. And that goes for all you other listeners as well. Let's move these postcards. They're taking up a lot of room. Okay, let's talk about today's guest and the book she's written. This, I'm going to take this right from the cover of the book, from the dust jacket. It is, The Songs We Know Best is the first comprehensive biography of the early life of John Ashbery by common consensus, the dominant poet of our time. In chronicling the 28 years that led up to Ashbery's stunning debut, Some Trees, chosen by W.H. Auden as the winner of the 1955 Yale Younger Poets Prize, Karen Ruffman shows how Ashbery's poetry, paradoxical and utterly new, arose from his early experiences, both on the family farm 
and in 1950s New York City. Drawing on unpublished correspondence, juvenilia, and childhood diaries, as well as more than 100 hours of conversation with the poet himself, Rothman offers an insightful portrayal of young Ashbery, a man who relied on his fierce imagination to survive both the tragic death of his younger brother and his family's silent shame upon discovering his homosexuality. The Songs We Know Best brings to life a bohemian existence that teemed with artistic fervor and radical innovations inspired by Dada and surrealism, as well as lifelong friendships with painters and writers, including Frank O'Hara, Jane Freilicker, Kenneth Koch, and James Schuyler. Today, Ashbery has a reputation as a poet of enigmatic asides, but Rothman's biography reveals how he mined his early life for the flint and tinder from which his provocative later poems grew, producing a body of work that he calls the experience of experience, or rather, the way a happening or experience filters through to me, an intertwining of life and art in extraordinarily intimate ways. End quote. And now, let's hear from Mike, El Presidente president of the Literature Supporters Club, on what John Ashbery has meant to him. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I think what it is, is he was the most accessible poet of all the poets I read um, when I was young. I would say like late teens, early 20s. And I think it was because his poems are so much like conversations. The lines roll into each other and there's such humor that kind of even though the syntax can be very, very dense, and he loves putting words together that you would never see together. Yeah, like here's an example of from his poem. He has, The titles are great, too. He has a poem called Assertiveness Training, and it begins, I like the integrity of what you have to say, drama or dream. And then um, later he says, without aggressiveness, hope, I couldn't conquer any of it. There'd be no piece of it to bring back to you saying, this is me, a lie among others we're exposed to. He kind of raised the standard of what I thought poetry should be. Because I think 
you know, when you read like Robert Frost or Emily Dickinson and the beauty is in the clarity, the beauty is in the the small insight. And then you, you read Ashbery and he has such grand ambitions. Yeah, I mean, he has these long poems I love, like A Wave and Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror and and The Stars Are Shining. And I'd never come across a, um, a 40-page poem before. Thank you, Mike. Short and sweet. Karen Ruffman, after this. Okay, in 1927, the poet John Ashbery was born in Rochester, New York. 78 years later, he met the woman who would become his biographer. That woman, Karen Rothman, is here today. Karen Rothman, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Oh, so did I get the highlights of his life? He was born and then he met you? That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, uh, in between he did a few other things. Um, yes, many things. <laughs> Your book, uh, which I will mention, is called The Songs We Know Best, John Ashbery's Early Life. And the, the dust jacket there says that Ashbery is, by common consensus, the dominant poet of our time. And I, I, I don't disagree with that. And I'm wondering if you felt that way before you met John Ashbery, or is that something you came to realize as you started the research? Uh, no, actually, it's definitely something that I felt before before mm-hmm. I met him. I, I had read his poetry and, and liked it, but it hadn't sort of affected me in the way that it did when I first heard him read um, mm. in person. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, in 2002. Um, I was a grad student at Yale at the time, and there was a, a, a big celebration for the Bollingen Prize winners, and they all read. And when he read, it was just um, sort of an incredible experience of mm. sort of a, a understanding his poetry without I couldn't have told you afterwards sort of which poems he read or um, or what they meant exactly but but there was something in, incredibly powerful about about hearing him read his own poems and and understanding something emotional in them mm. you know it it totally changed my relationship to his poetry and so I was reading it much more after that and and then when I got my first job at Bard College I was teaching a course and I I decided that we'd spend the last couple of weeks um it was on poetry and painting and uh we'd spend the last couple of weeks on his poetry and he was emeritus at the time um at Bard College mm. and I mean that didn't actually mean anything to me right. then um but the students uh, it was a class of, you know, sort of a mix of students between freshmen and senior, and and it must have been the older students who who said, you know, he's he's he comes to class, that he'll come. Just you got to just ask him. We really want to talk to him after right. we spent so much time with his poetry. And so I waited and I waited and I thought it would, you know, they'd stop asking because I really didn't know how to get in touch with him. And and then I finally they didn't stop. They were they were very persistent about it. And and I finally asked a colleague how to get in touch with him. And and he told me that you can only get in touch with him by phone, 
which sounded awful to me. So <laughs> I didn't want to call somebody I didn't know on the phone. Um, if it was email, that would have been easier. So right, it was right. getting towards the end of the semester, the end of the whole year, and and finally I I, I did I did call him and and he answered, um, which which I learned later was really unusual. Hmm. Well, not really unusual, but but pretty unusual. It was more likely that that his um, partner, uh, husband, uh, David Kermani would have answered. And so, so anyway, he, he answered and I sort of blurted out what was now a pretty rude question because it was very much <laughs> towards the end of the semester. It might have actually been the next day that, that class was meeting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so he, he said, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and he, he came to class and he couldn't have been, um, more delightful. And, and right. he gave me actually a book on that day and had signed it and with the date. So I know the date that I actually met him because of that. And, and, um, we sort of hit it off in the class and he invited me to see his house, which was not far from the campus. And so that's, that's really how I began to know him as a, as a person. Right. Okay. So I want you to be as honest as you can in response to this question without being overly modest. Uh, why you? Do you think that he recognized that you understood his poetry in a certain way, or were were other people not showing him, you know, at that point, was he not that much in demand, or did you just hit it off personally, or how did you develop this connection? Um, I mean, well, first of all, I waited a long time before I asked him if I could write a biography because I knew that he had said no to other people. Mm. At first, I was working on a project on his house, which was sort of an outgrowth of the previous book that I had written, which was on poets and domestic spaces. Mm. And his house in Hudson is fascinating. It's a 19th century house and it's full of an enormous number of 19th century objects. And it's sort of not what you'd expect from um, such an experimental poet. So the house fascinated me. And I was, I mean, he 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 liked me enough to let me be in his house constantly. Um, right and interviewing him about the objects in the house and um and the relationship between the objects and the poetry which was the original the 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 first project that I did uh, about him was about his life as as both a collector and a poet and it was the summer that I spent in the house every every day um interviewing him about the objects uh where where I discovered that he had written this diary as a child and right he, he said the diary was not interesting at all but I, I said I would love to read it, and and so he he let me take it home over the weekend, and and I I thought the diary was just absolutely incredible as a as a kind of story of of I mean it was it was you know a regular diary that is he was talking about getting up in the morning what he ate and brushing his hair and going to get haircuts and things like that the kind of ordinary details of life but mm-hmm. within that he was also learning how to read poetry and becoming and becoming incredibly interested in poetry and. Um, so, so you could see this, this sort of behind the scenes, um, project that, that he was participating in and sort of turning him into the poet that he, that he became. And, and the incidental facts of those days actually were very important to the development of his poetry. So, right. anyway, all, all of those things, I, I'm sure that, that my genuine interest in, in his, the relationship between his life and his poetry was something that mattered to him, I guess, in in choosing a biographer. But but I don't I don't know that he chose me so much as 
there was it was sort of natural the way mm-hmm. that the the relationship progressed. So right. so that by the time I did ask him, which was five years after I met him, you know, and and I'd known him these whole five years, it wasn't it was almost a non issue. Mm-hmm. It was so easy then at that point just to sort of continue what I was doing as opposed to just start something new. Right. So he had seen you kind of in action with the uh, work that you were doing on the objects, and he saw your reaction when he gave you the the journals, and he probably felt like he was in good hands at that point. I mean, I, I think he felt that, that, yeah, I think he felt that I had a kind of sympathy with the with both his poetry and and his life and 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 then I was you know honest and and would would take it seriously and be fair to it and and I mean on and also I I had found a lot of things in those in those years he had brought back when his mother died in 1987 he and his assistant at that time had sort of packed up her house and brought back um all these boxes of things that they had never unpacked. Mm. And um, so part of that summer that I was there every day, and then that continued sort of during the year, I was unpacking all these boxes and, and finding these things that he, you know, cause since many of the boxes he didn't even pack himself, he didn't even know, know uh, was it was there. So one of the things that I found was all his adolescent writing and, he had thought he had burned it or he had planned to burn it or something, but mm. somehow it had ended up in his, in his mother's house and made it back to his Hudson house. And, um, and, and it was, it was all packed really tightly into this old typewriter box. And I remember showing it to him and he, he, he was sort of in, in one sense appalled that it still existed <laughs> and, you know, sort of curious about it. And, yeah. And and for me that box was just it was a sort of a missing it was a missing piece because he had talked about all of those poems and he wrote a lot of stories and also right. wrote a lot of plays as a kid just in you know handwriting on on his Ashbury farm his parents stationery and and they were all there and then and and so putting that together I could date when each of these things was written and you mm-hmm. could really create a kind of chronology of the process by which he was turning himself into a writer. Right. And there was this amazing story that you talked about in the book as well about how the four journals that he knew about, the roughly a thousand pages of of journals written when he was, I think, between nine and 13, those were lost but returned to him. Yeah. Um, they were written actually between 13 and 16. Oh, okay. And they were. He He had given them to his therapist in the eighties, I think, and, and he had died and, um, and then they'd been lost for 15 years and somebody there in the, in the front of each of each journal, he had written in his very neat adolescent handwriting, you know, John Ashbery and, and the person had looked him up and figured out where he, where he lived and who he was and had just brought them back, which is sort of, yes, it it really is. (laughs) And you were able to draw from that. And it sounds like from the other papers you found, is that the point where you thought this biography should be his early years? You have sort of a roadmap to so much of his childhood and adolescence that it would make a good book? Well, I mean, I did think that, that the early years had, had a real story to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is that I asked him 
if I could do the early years in part because I knew that he had said no to other biographers and I thought, well, maybe he's he's less likely to say no if I if I only do things that are, you know, so so long ago that they don't feel, you know, quite so threatening. Right. Um so it was partly that that I asked that, although I mean in the end it was it was really worth it to to do the book that way in part because it meant that I was starting with the people who were oldest. Mm-hmm. You know, I started interviewing um, in 2000. Well, I, actually, I was interviewing a little bit before I had asked him, but but I started interviewing in real earnest in 2009, 2010, and and I was interviewing people who were over 100 who knew his parents, and and I went to a an old age home near Sodus, near where he grew up, and there were all these people there in the mm-hmm. in the who who knew him as a in school and you know they heard that I was there and I was able to talk to a lot of different people most of those people don't are aren't still alive at this point so it was it was actually kind of if I had started with the whole thing I might not have immediately realized the necessity of right, right. of starting at the beginning and and it was really helpful I mean incredibly I can't actually imagine having written that book without having talked to those people right well everyone who knew him as a say a boy uh, under the age of ten would have all been in their seventies when you talked to them. Yes, and I mean, and some some of the people who who knew his who knew his parents were were older and mm. who could who could talk about him, you know, from the perspective of of not just right. you know, being a classmate, but but also being a, a few years older and having some sense of of the family. I mean, because the his brother died when he was yeah thirteen. Or well, well, he was twelve actually, and and it was really something that the whole community mourned. So hearing about about that death from the perspective of people who are outside the family but had felt it quite deeply was also it was it was helpful to me not just in terms of learning about that particular um, traumatic episode, but also understanding the kind of community that he came out of. So okay, so let's back up a little bit. Okay. Uh, before we get to the death of the brother, which is um, certainly something we'll want to talk about. But before that, it seems like you were finding that he, I want to say he was born to be a poet. There, there just seemed to be all of these signals early on that this was somebody who had real, a real sensibility and, a, and real gifts. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he wrote this incredible poem called The Battle when he was eight. Yeah. Um. He sort of just sat down and and wrote this um, ecstatic poem after seeing Midsummer Night's Dream for the first time as a film and um, used his grandfather's typewriter and it just flowed out of him. And then, I mean, that poem, I think, is actually remarkable. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. And and it's it's incredible that an eight-year-old could produce a poem that's both that witty, so sophisticated, it's sophisticated metrically even i mean he didn't know iambic pentameter but the but the poem kind of falls into it at the end and mm-hmm. and it has a it has a narrative and then it has a kind of witty epic quality to it so that it seems like it's about to be a long narrative a kind of epic narrative and then and then he just ends that really quickly and gets yeah. to the punchline i mean it's so sophisticated in so many ways yeah. and and so but then i think um he had to it was so natural to him, but then he had to figure out how to do it actually. Um, mm. 
and I think that that process was was a real process, and that process started, a, you know, a few years after that. Um, he didn't write poetry then, right? For quite some time because after that, that uh, poem. because the battle was published. <laughs> well, it was it wasn't published, but it was read at um at oh, his. Okay. Let's see. It was his aunt, first cousin's husband's mother's apartment. Yeah, um, who was a famous author in New York City, and she had a, an apartment um, on Park Avenue, and it was read there. In fact, I think I think that in the audience was the original um, founder of FSG, one oh. of the Ferrar, <laughs> one <laughs> right. of the Ferrars. So it had a this it, it had a kind of pedigree that poem, even though it wasn't it wasn't published, but it was read to this august crowd. And so anyway, he did feel some pressure after that. Yeah. Um, at least within the family, that he should do something that betters that, and so he stopped writing completely. Right. He's he put together a little book that was going to be a his book of poems, and then he realized he he couldn't write anything uh, <laughs> after the battle. Right. Right. That was it. <laughs> but so that was it for a while. But he does seem to have had uh, encouragement from some of the adults in his life. And as he got a little bit older and went to school, he seems to have had teachers along the way who recognized in him a, a kind of talent and, and helped to foster that. And, and I was struck by how they seem to have helped him or he developed an ability to edit himself and to be critical of his own work and to work on improving his work. It seems that seemed to me particularly precocious. Yeah, I think I think he was um I mean he developed a a kind of critical skill quite quickly and early and I mean I guess he had it in a way right away um because he felt like he couldn't do something better than the poem that he had already done. Right. So he was already actually a perfectionist quite quite early on. Yeah. But he did he did I mean his his parents really weren't interested in in poetry at all. Mm. So you know they were proud of him um, in terms of that poem, but um, just because it had a kind of family lore, but but they really had no interest in poetry. And yeah. his his grandfather, his mother's father, was a professor of physics in uh, University of Rochester, and really uh, like sort of an incredibly bright and self motivated person. And and he really recognized his grandson's talent. Um, not just as a poet, but just in terms of the quickness of his mind. Mm, and mm-hmm. his gr- his grandmother liked poetry a lot and wrote it for fun. And his grandmother also was extremely smart and, you know, trained to be a teacher, but never taught after she married. But she, she also, I, th- I mean, I think that for her, a certain kind of moral life was more import- important than an intellectual life. Mm-hmm. Um, so she wasn't really that encouraging, but she did appreciate that he had some talent as a poet. Right. I think it was his grandfather, though, you know, most of all in the within the family who who encouraged him intellectually. Right. But then he did have this teacher. Her, her name was Miss Clump. Right. When he was in high school, in in just the regular Sodas High School, this is before he went to Deerfield Academy, and and she loved Robert Frost. She ended up going to study with him, um, but this was after John was her student, and. Um, she really knew that he was something special and he wasn't, I mean, he was writing sort of Imagist-esque poems the year that he was in her class and turning them in. And he was also writing some kind of melodramatic narrative poems that year. 
so they weren't really good poems mm-hmm. exactly but but she understood something about the way that he was understanding the development of poetry that made her understand that he was developing in a way that was exciting and and yeah. she knew this so much that she actually I talked to her she wasn't alive when I started writing this book but her she had four sons and and I talked to um one of them and he sent me actually some of the things that she had saved in her safe and she had saved some of his work. Mm. She somehow knew in a kind of uh, instinctive way that he was something special. Yeah. Well, this is a boy who I think he was five years old or something where he, there's that wonderful passage in your book where he recalls that the feeling he got when he looked at a a flight of stairs and he thought, I regret, I regret these stairs. And then he was so, he was so struck, even at that age, he was struck by how much he enjoyed that word being in that phrase and, and the way that it all kind of hung together and said exactly what he wanted it to say. And it's, it seems like that's the kind of, I don't know, prepossession that mm-hmm. that the teachers were recognizing. And then there was a family friend who was so struck by him that she ended up kind of paving the way for him to go to the prep school, Deerfield, with, with like a, made a bet with the headmaster. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, she was, she lived in, in Rochester, but she, she had a summer home that kind of was across the street. And so she knew... John and she knew his she knew his parents well and she really liked his mother um very much and she had three sons and they all went to Deerfield the youngest was about to start mm-hmm. uh, he was about the same age a little tiny bit younger than than John but about the same age and she yeah she she so she knew Frank Boyden the famous headmaster of Deerfield very well and she sent him a handwritten long letter about John and she she wasn't she, it's not his poetry actually that that made her recognize his potential it it was actually he was on this show he won the a place oh, in yeah. <laughs> in Rochester to be placed on the quiz kids show that that taped in Chicago right so to to get to that opportunity he had to win several different rounds within Chicago and beat a lot of other kids, older and younger, in in the area, in the state. And so he really did very, very well in this kind of, he, he knew an enormous amount of esoteric knowledge and was very, very quick. Mm. And then he was on the, the Chicago show where he did kind of so-so, but but still the fact that he got to that point was actually kind of heroic in his in his town. People remembered it. I mean, when I was interviewing people, you know, in this century, they were still talking about the fact that he was a quiz kid. Right. It was a really big deal that the that radio show um, at yeah. the time, yeah. like it had some of the some of the kids who were on it were on the cover of Life magazine, and it was because of the quiz kid show that that she was so impressed with him, and so she arranged for him to be able to to go to Deerfield and to be able to go on a on a really big scholarship. Hmm. So it seems like, and I, I don't want to minimize his other experiences, and I think we should probably talk about his father and the relationship he had with his father, too, but he he seems to be this boy, he was growing up on a farm, he had chores, and he was living a kind of country life, but he felt drawn to the city, he felt drawn to the, the world of books, he didn't... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
really enjoy sports all that much or hunting and fishing. And in some ways, he was kind of a fish out of water. I think there's, uh, you, you mentioned that other children referred to him as a sissy. And he, it, it seems like everybody sort of sees that he's headed for something else. But at the same time, he's absorbing all of this being outdoors, being in, in nature and mm-hmm. hard work. You know, I think that's part of him as well. Oh, I think it's a huge part of him, and it's a huge part of the poetry as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, both Sodus on the fruit farm where he grew up and Pulteneyville, which is just uh, six miles away, which is right on the border uh, on the shore of, of Lake Ontario, where his grandparents had a, had a house. And he spent his very happiest times in Pulteneyville on the water in the summers and his less happy times, um, but equally important times in his bedroom which overlooked the orchard um, of the of the family fruit farm, and all of all of that landscape, the the waves and 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 the trees are so central to his poetry. I mean, I the first time that I went up there, which was in the summer of uh, 2009, while I was working on the objects in his house, and there were so many objects in his house that were from where he grew up, and from that had been in his grandparents' house or had been in, in the farm, I decided I needed to go to go see it. And I went, and it was just totally revelatory to me. Mm. I mean, it was revelatory to me in terms of how I read the poetry mm-hmm. um, because I realized it's, I mean, I, I think of it now as a kind of hum. Like, it's it's always there. It's like a background sound. Sometimes it moves to the forefront of a poem, but but often it's just simply there. Um, which is this this kind of either the sound of the waves, the hum of the waves, which is in so many poems, or a kind of view of the trees or or the the fruit or the smell even of the, of the of the fruit farm, and and it's it's just in so many poems that it was it was really it it completely changed sort of the way that I read his yeah. poems. It it sort of slowed down like my interest in the kind of phrases that sort of glue some of the fragments together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that the the poems became became easier in a way to 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 retain a kind of attention to to a long poem because they seem to be glued together through this kind of sense of the landscape that he grew up with. Right. So, I wanted to talk about his father, and but let's save that because this is another subject I really wanted to ask you about, which is just literary biography and how we mm-hmm. use that to understand poetry. And I, I know there are probably some hardliners out there who say they don't want to know anything about the life of the poet, that it doesn't have anything to do with the poem, and we should just analyze the words on the page. I don't know if that's still a, an argument that, that you hear. I remember hearing that when I was in college. Right. But the way you just describe it is, for me, what's most interesting. The older I get, the more that I I look at literature as being uh, the chance to spend some time in the mental space of somebody mm-hmm. else. And right. I love the act of creation. I love thinking about what drove this person to create it. I love thinking about how all of the experiences that form this person kind of combine with their their genius or their talent or their creativity, and then that all gets transmuted onto the page. And I find that it it deepens and enriches my reading. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, I I can understand why some poets probably dislike it and why they're resistant to 
biographers coming in and and there's a danger that you could be reductionist and say mm-hmm. well this this means x you know because uh i can trace this back to this event then you know and it, it almost becomes more about the critic than about the poet or the poem right uh, did you feel like you were trying to walk that tightrope as you went through his uh, through his past and and the way that you were understanding his poems and how you wove in some of the poetry into his biography i mean y- y- yes certainly i mean that that is what i want in terms of my own research into a writer is to become a better reader of that writer and to become a better reader doesn't mean to solve the puzzles of that writer it just mm-hmm. it, it means something else <laughs> Um, and I think it's closer to what you were describing about um, to be able to enter the mental space of the writer and stay in that mental space mm-hmm. as long as possible. John Ashbery himself is on record as being extremely anti-biography, and in part for, for the very reasons that you're describing, that one of the problems with biography is if it pretends to solve the very mysteries at the heart of creativity, which are the very mysteries that in, in some way drive a poem, and so it's 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 fault to take those mysteries away, but but I don't think it's fault to run al- alongside them <laughs> mm-hmm. and to um, keep pace with them. You know, Ashbery himself was fascinated by other writers, and and when he was fascinated by a writer, he tended to be really really interested in their biography. And mm-hmm. by biography, he had a really open sense of what that meant, and and it meant knowing where they lived it meant knowing what right. streets they walked down it meant yeah you know it it meant doing what what you're describing which is kind of following in the footsteps of of a writer enough so that you are 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 keeping a better pace with them than than you might have otherwise i mean in terms of writing an, an early life book i felt that you know ashbury's mind is incredibly quick and he's an incredibly quick writer and thinker so one of the benefits of writing about his early days figuring out how to write was that I was watching a slower, a, you know, I was watching him figure things out in a slightly slower pace because he hadn't quite figured it out yet, and hmm. which meant that I could follow his mind um, as it took some turns, not just see that he had taken them and not know which ones they were. So, right. um, and so that that was pleasurable um you know it was it was meaningful to to go up and see those places and see those sites and understand better some of his interests his interests are so vast Mm. and his his reading is so vast and he's such a fast reader that you know going through the way that he got to the point where he could be um as quick as he is was was a, a really helpful exercise and then you know, the first draft of the book was 500 pages, and so <laughs> clearly I was I was offering a little bit too too many details of the experience of keeping pace. But um, after many rewrites, I think that that I had you know pulled out the things that at least to me mattered most in terms of the progress of my own understanding of how to be a better reader of Ashbury's poetry. Right. Oh, that's very well put. And I have to say, I agree that it's successful. I mean, I I thought it was just marvelous how you were able to give me what I needed to know about him and connect it with uh, some of his poems, but not in a way that felt to me like you were just connecting dots for the sake of connecting dots or or over-explaining. 
Oh, well, thank you. I, I mean, I hope, you know, I, I hope I continue to learn. I'm writing the rest of the biography now. Oh, you are? So, okay. So I'm continuing to, to learn and to try to think through, you know, how, how he puts together those poems. And it's, it's never one thing or one way or one experience. Mm. So mm-hmm. it's, it's always a matter of sort of trying to think through the process that he went through to write it at the same time as recognizing that at some point in writing the poem, there's a, there's a process that's almost unfollowable and that the best thing that a biographer can do, I think, is make sense of the world in which he's writing within so that the reader of, of the biography and the reader of his poetry can just keep going back to the poem. Right. Okay. So let's move back to uh, his relationship with his father and the, um, the tragedy that kind of visited the family at a young age. So mm-hmm. I want to say that his father, there was a disconnect between John and his father. I, I don't know that we'd go so far as to say that his father was abusive, but he was he was certainly strict. And uh, John seems to have always felt as if he maybe wasn't the type of boy that his father had expected or, or wanted. Is that a, I think a that's, good summary? That's, yeah, absolutely accurate. Mm. And he thought his and and John these were hard years to be gay and he knew that he was attracted to boys but he didn't really have any any roadmap for that or he seems to have had the kind of mixture of of fear and shame and and the secrets and the anxiety and not having anyone to talk to about it wondering if something was wrong with him and I think that probably still goes on today, but I'd like to think that it happens less as we have, you know, a greater societal awareness and and more resources for young people. But did that come through in the journals, the sort of uh, anxiety that he felt? Yes. He was anxious about a couple different things. One was that people would find out that he hmm. was attracted to other boys and the other that people would find out what he was doing. And um, he knew that his mother sometimes read those diaries, mm. so he he was uh, very good with languages, and so he learned Latin, and he started writing some of the things that he didn't want her to know in Latin, right. and then he started learning French, and he started writing in French when he didn't want her to know things, and then he would switch pronouns so that, um, or so, uh, switch nouns so that she, she wouldn't know that he was writing about a boy, mm. he would it would seem like he was writing about a girl. And um, so he did a lot of those things quite consciously to make sure that nobody knew. Mm. I mean, on the one hand, he was very careful about it. On the other hand, he was very open like in, in his own life and his own thoughts and right. um, emotionally uh, about what he was thinking and what he knew about himself and was discovering. And So he wasn't so, sort of denying things to himself. He wasn't in that Mm-mm. um trying to to twist himself around that way he he knew what he felt and he was honest with himself about what he felt that's right and he was just careful about what he let other people know and i mean what's interesting is that he he had an unc- uh well it was his grandfather's first cousin who also lived in the town of Pulteneyville who lived with his lover but they called him a manservant mm. so he lived with his sister and his lover and they called him a manservant and and he went to all the family functions, and um, I think it wasn't until 
John was about 15 that he realized he saw a, some a postcard or something on the table and he all of a sudden he realized what the the relationship actually was and so he he had actually grown up in a town knowing knowing this this couple but not knowing that they were a couple and mm. and he, I mean there were other instances like that where where he sort of had examples without totally realizing that they were they were examples um, right. at the time so there he is and he feels like he's his brother is more his dad's kind of boy and then his brother dies very young of leukemia and mm-hmm. john and his father those are some of the saddest passages in the book it just seems like they're both grieving and you want them to be able to grieve together because who else would there be besides the mother and the grandparents who would be able to share that pain in the same way? But at the same time, they seem to have not been able to really communicate about it. And they just, you know, the the father has a photo of the boy that he keeps close to him, which is understandable. But for John, it seems like a constant reminder that, you know, that he's not the son that his father would have wanted and and his the son his brother who is the one his father would have wanted is gone and it just uh it's just heartbreaking i think it was i think it was uh, i mean uh, the whole experience was completely heartbreaking i mean i heard, first heard the story from from john and and his father was really very cold in in that version of the story and hmm. and i think that that's completely how it felt within the within the family that the father seemed to have completely shut down and then seemed to be not responsive to the pain of the brother the brother meaning John and who who is still alive that I mean I think that's how it felt to mm. to him as a child one of the things that was sort of opened up the the story a little bit for me to understand it in a to take a step back and understand it in a wider way was to talk to the people in the town Chet Ashbury or Chester Ashbury, John's father, was really beloved in in Sodus. Mm. He was incredibly, I think, before Richard died, he was perceived as extremely playful, unbelievably funny, mm. and very creative. Also, he became a kind of master woodworker and would fix the church pews and would build coffee tables and he built all these bird you know, birdhouses for right. a lot of neighboring neighbors. And, and so, I mean, I think that, that the perception of, of his father was so different outside of the family. Yeah. And then, I mean, within the family, I think that he was quite hard on John's mother and, um, and very hard on John. And, and, and when, when Richard died, which was absolutely just like a crushing wave because it happened so quickly and so out of the blue. Mm. You know, he was seemed to have the flu in February, and 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 by March he was in the hospital, and by the beginning of July he had died, mm. and so it it just absolutely changed the family. And um, Carol Rupert, who was a neighbor in Pulneyville, well, the her her elderly aunts were a neighbor of John's grandparents in Pulneyville, so Carol and who was about a year a little over a year younger than than John they basically grew up as as siblings and she knew him better than anybody um her mother and John's mother had been sorority sisters together in college mm-hmm. she explained to me in in kind of very clear ways how how the family never really recovered from mm. 
this event. And and there's a photograph that I include in the book that was one that Carol gave me, which is John's father hugging John's brother and then Carol's mom hugging her and next to each other. And the I don't know, the pleasure that is on Chet Ashbury's face in that photo, which was not long before Richard got sick, is just it just explains sort of the the kind of, I don't know, just sort of general good feeling or happiness that he felt with that with with Richard mm. that I I think he just and just ease that photograph to me is a, a photograph of total ease mm. in a relationship and there's there's really no photograph that exists of Chet with with John that has anything like that kind of ease I think they were cordial to one another but they were they were not ever maybe you know shortly before Chet died but they they reached a kind of place in their relationship that was okay but they never had that kind of innate ease that he yeah. had with his younger son. And then if if they were ever going to develop it, it probably would have been very difficult after Richard had died. I think, does John call it a devouring cloud at one point? Like it it just seems well, like, um, you know, it would be looming over them always, that sadness. Yeah, I mean, I think that they they were able to, you know, by sheer force of will, keep going but it was something that was never that he never recovered from i mean anybody in the family ever recovered from fully right and then it sounds like you became part of the story uh in a sense and is it did i read this correctly that you were the one who told john that his that confirmed for john that chet had known that john was gay that's true I mean, I think that any biographer um, who's writing a biography of somebody who is living, and I wish John was still living, but for the whole time that I was writing this early life, he was, and we talked regularly, and so part of the interviews were about what I was learning outside of those interviews, and it was interesting to me, the dynamic of this, because the people I was talking to were friends with I mean, some of them weren't anymore in in touch with with John Ashbery, but in this particular case, it was Carol Rupert who told me this, and because um, mm. it was John had John's father had told her father and had known this was like way back. This was in 1945, I think, right? Yeah, it's 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 really far back. Um, yeah, and and John never knew for sure whether his father knew. He he knew that he had. In 1945, right before he had left for college, he had left a, a letter on his bedside table unsealed, and the letter was about this boy that he was in love with at Deerfield. And he left the letter by accident, and then because he hadn't been in practice of sealing everything up because he hadn't been home for a while, and he got on a bus to go to Buffalo to see his cousin. On the bus, he had a kind of oh no moment, and and realized that it was likely that his mother was going to read the letter. And when mm-hmm. he got back, he knew from just from her face before she even started talking that, that she had. And he begged her not to share it with his father, and she said she wouldn't. And that was all he knew. Mm. She never mentioned the letter again. She never told him that she did, in fact, tell his father and tell her husband. Um, you know, shortly after he left for college, she, she told him. Yeah. And then he was upset and drove into Rochester to talk to Carol's father his old friend and Carol was there and overheard. And so she was the one who told me. So she had known this since then and she had known John since then. So 
Um, So the dynamic of this was interesting to me because she, of course, John could have asked her. They had never, ever discussed the topic at all of him being gay, ever. And And this is like for 60 years. That's right. More than that. Wow. Um, I mean, I did find that it was a, I sometimes felt like I was on a a bit of a tightrope of of being in a mediator within relationships that were longer and deeper than the one that I was, but I was playing a kind of role that, that was, they were, they wanted, I I mean, Mm -hmm. I I never discussed with Carol whether or not I was going to tell John Mm -hmm. and John never told her that I did. And unfortunately she passed away a few years ago. So they never did and I don't think they would have anyway um, ever discussed yeah. the fact that, that she knew or that she hadn't told him or that he had never asked. How did John respond when you told him? I, I mean, I remember it as actually one of the one of the most moving moments of the experience of writing it because yeah. he had really wanted to know. Um, oh. And I didn't know how much he wanted to know until I told him and and saw how he reacted to it which was complex yeah and did he seem or does it seem to you that this gave him a new maybe understanding that his father had accepted him in a way knowing that his father had known this for so long um i mean i would i i think that if i I think that it was it was a kind of relief. Mm. There there was a kind of relief in it. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you would have put it the way that you just did of a kind of acceptance. I I'm not sure. Yeah. But 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 maybe there was that in in terms of cuz I did I did think that he felt a a kind of I don't know, it was comforting somehow to know that he had known for so long. Yeah. I mean, for someone who has to live with a lot of secrets, it, mm. and then, you know, f- once he left there and got to Harvard and New York, it seems like there were fewer secrets, and you know, he he got a taste of what it was like to live with less secrets and and to be more open, and and you wonder if it gave him some peace to know that it hadn't been a life of of deception in some sense. Well, may, maybe, but but maybe also it just helped explain or put put things into place that made more sense. Yeah. Um, in terms right. of just the just the behavior of his father over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I don't really know. So I I don't know. I shouldn't speculate. But maybe that that was part of the. Or maybe it's just simply sometimes nice to know the answer to something you've always wondered. Yeah, yeah. And these things, um, you did such a a beautiful, you gave such a beautiful description of the way that his childhood landscape uh, carried through for you after you visited it and the way it's it affected the way you read the poems. And I'm guessing that these emotional events must have a similar kind of, uh, give a, a similar kind of depth to his poetry when you read it now. Yes, I mean there there's certain there's certain moments that read very differently as a result of of knowing not only exactly what happened but also the timeline of of what happened and how he reacted to it and 
he has himself surprised his readers by talking about it quite directly in this poem, The History of My Life, mm-hmm. where he talks. I think, I mean, it's it's one of the only and most direct places where he talks about the death of his brother. Mm. And that was a, a, a late poem. I mean, that wasn't, that was 2006. So um, it was, it was something that, that he came to be able to talk about in that direct way later. I mean, I think that his, his emotional life is in all the poems and somehow it's less that that emotional life comes through than that, than what he was looking at while he was feeling those things comes through. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think right. in, in some ways the landscape is his emotional life. Um, and that's partly why those moments do form a kind of glue in the poems. Mm. Wow. Okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. You wake up one morning and find that you have traveled backward in time to the moment when you ask John Ashbery if he ever kept any journals. Funny you should ask, he says. I have four of them, a thousand pages that no one has ever read. I'll give you a choice. I'll let you read them, but if you do, you have to sign an agreement that you will not write my biography. Either you can write my biography or you can read the journals. Which do you pick? Um, I guess I would read the journals. <laughs> <laughs> and you would be the only reader of his poetry who would who would benefit from having uh, the kind of insight that you gain from these journals. That would be a loss. Be a, <laughs> a loss to the world of poetry. Or is it better to say that you can't imagine working on the biography without having the the grounding that the journals would give you? I mean, I guess you could say that the poems themselves do reenact the journals in in a sort of way. I mean, that is the yeah. thing that mattered in the journals, what he learned from from writing them. Yeah. Is something that he put directly back into his poetry. The the journals very quickly, I mean, after the first year they became writing exercises and he was completely straightforward about it in the journal. I need to get a journal in order to practice writing. I mean, it's basically what he says. So, but there's, there was something incredibly raw and earnest about reading his thoughts and his thoughts about thinking, which is what's what the poems are, you know, before he knew that, that he wanted to write about the thoughts that he was thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a privilege to be able to be able to to read that kind of early work and and for him to be willing to to allow someone to and i think that that the reason that he felt kind of embarrassed ab- about those journals is because of the direct relationship between the journals and what he was able to do later with you know greater confidence and knowledge and understanding of what it was that he was doing but but that he wanted to do that, that he wanted to write poems about the ways that we think about how we understand things is what he discovered in those journals. So, right. so I don't know. So I was happy to read them. All the fame and glory that has come your way for writing this biography, you would forego it all in order to have the experience of reading the journals. I think that's I really, beautiful. Well, I really just wanted to write the biography to become a better <laughs> reader. So I would have just done it for myself. Well, I should mention, though, that uh, in spite of that, 
the book, The Songs We Know Best, John Ashbery's Early Life, has made this year's New York Times list of 100 notable books for the year, which I think is much deserved. And I think it would uh, make a great holiday gift for anyone who loves poetry or anyone who loves stories of 20th century America. And the author, again, is Karen Rothman. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thanks so much for having me here. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Oh, boy, did I enjoy that. Karen, could there be a nicer person than Karen Rothman? And her book is amazing. So smart and fascinating. Make a great gift for all you poets and poetry lovers out there. Speaking of gifts, get your swag at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Or just send along a little little holiday cheer to me at patreon.com slash literature. And no, I have not been imbibing any holiday cheer. It is 4.16 in the morning and I'm drinking tea. Anyway, you you would really brighten my day. I would truly appreciate it. My thanks to Karen Rothman and to Mike for stopping by. We'll be back soon with an episode on Raymond Carver, among many other great episodes in the works. So sign up now. You won't want to miss them. And my thanks to you, dear listeners, for joining me on this journey. There are some dark nights and some dark days on the calendar and in life. I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. Darkness all across the land. Now I'm quoting Thriller. Anyway, darkness is everywhere, but there are some rays of light too. Let's keep our spirits up. We can be here for each other. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>